At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello and welcome to Bad With Money. If you're a brand new listener, I'm Gabe Dunn. And if you're an old listener... Welcome back to the show. We are starting out a brand new season. There's going to be full episodes every Tuesday and mailbags every Friday. You should write into the mailbags at gabeisbadwithmoney at gmail.com. Share anything you want. I'm excited for our very first episode of this new season because it follows a trend we started last year with breakdowns and takedowns. Breakdowns and Takedowns is a series that we've been doing where we watch a film or listen to a show or a song or read a book. uh, And then a guest and I talk about that and how it relates to personal finance. And usually we have a bad time. But shockingly, this episode and this book, my guest and I both enjoy it. So buckle up. Here's a brand new episode. We'll be here every Tuesday and Friday. Please write in. You can send a voice memo. Gabe is bad with money at gmail.com. I'm so excited to get into this with you guys. We're going to do episodes about job hunting, index funds. Stephanie Lee is back for another boring episode. And we're also going to be reading stuff by Jim Cramer and Warren Buffett. And that's less of an exciting detail and more of a threat. Okay, here's the episode. Enjoy. You got problems that you ought to be concerned with. Supposed to earn it or what to do with it or how to keep it. You're a freak with a dark, shameful secret. But you're not the only one. Get your hidden financial fears with a blast of sun. Now your healing has begun. It's bad with money with Gabe S. Done. Hello, welcome to Bad With Money, a show about finances and feelings where we don't talk down to you. The book we are reading today is Damon John's The Power of Broke. Our guest is Marcus Garrett. Can you tell my audience who you are and what you do? I'm actually the author of Debt Free or Die Trying and host of Life After Debt with the Marcus Garrett Show. I basically help people make more money, overworked and underpaid employees make more money. (laughs) Perfect. This book has a longer title, which is The Power of Broke, How Empty Pockets, a Tight Budget, and a Hunger for Success Can Become Your Greatest Competitive Advantage. I have done a bunch of episodes called Breakdowns and Takedowns, where a lot of times I'm very pissed off at the book. This, this, I was ready. I was so ready to be mad. And then I actually really enjoyed a lot of it. How did you feel about the book in general? 
Yeah, same. I, I don't do takedowns. At least I haven't had to recently, but I have had some struggle books. I read 20 personal finance books as a challenge I, I said I was going to do on the podcast and people started holding me accountable. So, <laughs> and, and what you learn if you've, if you've read 20, if you've read two, that is the advice is the same after the first two. And so I had to read 18 other books. And so some I had to struggle through. Not the case with uh, Damon, though. I know. So, yeah, I've read a bunch of them, too, and they really are usually pretty tone deaf. And I actually really liked this book. I write down tons of notes when I read them. So I have a lot of notes, but I want to introduce people to Damon himself. If you don't know who he is, he's on Shark Tank. He's the guy who, one of the guys who created FUBU. What is your experience of Damon or FUBU? Did you know much about it? And, and that's what I liked. I, it was a good walk down memory lane because I actually rocked FUBU. So for the listening audience that does know, I'm an elder millennial. I would fall in that range. But I actually had FUBU. I remember you had to fight for when they had platinum FUBU. And for people who don't know what that is, like you got Bugs Bunny. I don't know why. But it was like a real popular, important thing to have Bugs Bunny on your shirt when platinum FUBU. So I'm really about this for us, by us life. Yes. Okay. So the best part of this book was Damon himself. A lot of the book is him interviewing other people. And you'll hear that like, I sort of checked out at certain parts because Damon himself is is the best part about this book. He does not get into God as much as other finance books. It's a normal amount of God. And he also has a social justice approach, which I never see from these gurus at all. He like recognizes a lot of inequality. And he also, what I really enjoyed is he talks about how like the way that I came up is not one size fits all which a lot of people think it is. So he has a net worth right now of 350 million. So he's actually on the lower end of the sharks. A lot of them are have a, a higher net worth than him. He does kind of go into like a mythical backstory of himself, like myth building, but less so than other books I've read. And the coverage of FUBU when it first started is a little iffy. So I read this New York Times article from 1999 it was called Trying to Stay True to the Streets. And it is written by, you guessed it, a white woman. So he made some comments to Vibe magazine, basically talking about how he used to deal drugs on the street, right? And then the New York Times covered it and said, and this is the quote, although being known as a former drug dealer may enhance a rap star's street cred, it is no asset for a businessman whose clothes are manufactured and distributed by Samsung, the Korean electronics giant. Mr. John declined to comment on the Vibe article. A company spokeswoman, Leslie Short, said the remarks were taken out of context. And frankly, I'm very angry. So it is interesting that he had to play the game of seeming to have street cred to vibe. But then when it came to the New York Times, it was like, no, 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 no. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. I didn't hear the, I read the New York Times article. We did speak to that a little bit in the book that he both had to, had to strike that balance and he lost some of his credibility from when he came up in the streets and selling the clothes when they went into Macy's. That's like the sellout point. But he made more money going that route. Mm -hmm. Which is something that I don't think a lot of these other like finance gurus have really touched on. It was like a really interesting like business book. There's also an article in the hundreds called The Rise and Fall of FUBU that talks about how, okay, so Damon John was raised in the Hollis neighborhood of Queens. He didn't come from family money and his parents divorced when he was 10 and he never saw his father again. And he says, we went from middle class to poor and I became the man of the house and started working at that age. Then he gets LL Cool J involved in FUBU. I watched some 
hilarious Gap and FUBU commercials from 1999 or earlier with LL Cool J. That is just him rapping into the camera. And I guess he did a thing where he was in a Gap commercial, but they let him wear his own hat. And so he's wearing a FUBU hat in the commercial. And Gap was, I guess, pissed, but that, I guess, got FUBU a lot of play, which is kind of interesting. And then, and then... In 1999, the, the same time as the New York Times article, NSYNC shows up to an award show or performance wearing FUBU. Now, FUBU is for us by us, so it is really supposed to be for Black people. And NSYNC shows up wearing FUBU jerseys, and that is sort of the decline of FUBU. <laughs> I thought you were going to say that's when they blew up. And I, I feel like I remember that. I know there's a, it's either Backstreet or NSYNC, and I know some people are going to be offended that I'm mixing those two bands, offended to their core. But I do remember NSYNC winning through the, like the, the bandana phase for the waves that they didn't have. This is, a, this is actually come back. But I do, I feel like they might have had FUBU shirts on. He also mentioned in the book that LL, LL did him a lot of what we would call like influencer at this time because he rocked it in any given Sunday. So I thought it was pretty cool. They were looking out for each other coming up in the same hood. I'm using finger quotes. I'm not sure they're going to see this video. Okay, so I looked up the demographics of Hollis and I got so many conflicting people on message boards would be like, it's the hood. Then some people would be like, no, it's not. So like he portrays it as kind of like, oh, there's a lot of shootings. There's a lot of stuff that he could have gotten involved in, all these things. And he really credits his mother with keeping him out of that lifestyle. But I couldn't get, a, I, I'm not from the area, so I could not get a read from like the internet of, maybe it's just a very divided area, but I could not get a read on if he's exaggerating or not. Yeah, I, mean, I think you see that a lot. And, you know, I, I joke that I came from the gritty street to the suburbs, but like you can get in trouble anywhere. Yeah, like, yeah, you know, trouble's down the street no matter where you live, <laughs> if you go looking for it. But I can see how, you know, I'm not from Hollis. I'm not from New York. So it's kind of whose word do you take about how bad their struggle was and the experience that they lived? Yeah, I know. I can't I can't really get a read on if he actually did grow up in poverty or not. But either way, I mean, it makes for a great story. And like a lot of the ads in the beginning of promoting FUBU is like him and the co-founders kind of looking very like arms crossed, very like, scary. Oh, we're like bad gangsters or whatever, which is kind of, I think was part of their marketing. And I didn't know this actually. He was talking about how a lot of the other brands that were popular at that time were like owned by white people. So like Timberlands and things like that were like, this is why he called it or he was calling it like for us, by us. And he did a lot of hustling. Like he went to the black expos and like sold stuff. And he, he talks about like, well, we'll get into it, but he talks about like going for your market, which I think is super smart. And also you mentioned LL Cool J. He like went and like waited at his music videos to try to get him to wear FUBU stuff. Like very, very smart marketing. And, and to that point, and I don't know, I noticed in the book and as we're kind of walking through the story, I don't think he talked about any of the other founders. It kind of reminds me of like Boys to Men, how the, the deep voice guy just kind of faded off and Boys to Men just went on. And it's like, but now it's like boys to three. Like, where's the other man? Like, so now I'm curious, like, I, that would be a curious story to me. And they may, they might be able to validate some of that. Yeah, he did come from the hood. Now nah, he grew up in the birds. I don't know what you're talking about. I noticed he didn't mention any of his co-founders. So that's an interesting string I might pull on after this. I know. I looked it up. A couple of them still, they all have co-founder of FUBU in their Instagram bios. And a couple of them still work and like, 
kind of blew up. And then one of them is not, doesn't have as many followers. And I was like, oh, this is like the social network. This is like Facebook. Where is the FUBU Facebook movie? Can you imagine? Yeah, I think that'd be good. I'm I'm, I'm getting new addition. Oh, no, Jodeci. Jodeci. Oh, man, I almost had another, like hurting people to their core. I went and saw Jodeci. Casey and JoJo are still performing, but they call themselves Jodeci. And I, I talked to two different people who went to two different concerts and saw Casey and JoJo getting two different fights. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess I'm just saying the struggle is real with any boy band. Yeah, and they are boy band. I will say that in the book, he does reference... Michael Jackson, Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, Tony Robbins, and Trump. And this book came out in 2016. So it was, I think, before Trump was elected president. So he must have been writing it in 2015. So there is, I don't know if he feels the same way about Trump now, but he does seem to like him in this book. (laughs) Yeah, I, 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 you dropped a name list there. The other ones, it, it was funny how when he's telling these other stories in entrepreneurial studies, he's like, yeah, my friend, uh, you know, Steve Jobs, <laughs> Gary Vanderchuk, you know, he like just dropping these names and tells their story. And this is true. I'm not joking. Like, these are accurate. Rob, Rob Gerdick was one that jumped out to me. But what I really liked that was relatable about those stories, and most of them talked about the failure. It wasn't just like, yeah, Rob's rich and he was always rich. It was like, you know, Rob came from Ohio. And these are stories you know now, but I connect Rob with ridiculousness because it's been on for 16 years and 300 episodes. Actually, it's like 600 episodes. But it's like, you know, he was a skateboard kid that came up at, at age 11 and he went to skateboarding because it was his passion and he stumbled through all these other avenues became a successful entrepreneur. So I thought that was really cool sharing those not so highlighted stories. And now we see the highlights that back in, you know, the key to success is the first 10 years. Mm -hmm. So in chapter one, a lot of this is about how to work things out when you have no money. And there's a theme that he has that he says, okay, my, my theme with this book is that he says some really great deep stuff and then sort of backs away from it with platitudes. Okay. So like, Deep pockets will never be enough to buy all the passion, ingenuity, and determination it takes to have success over the long haul. Incredible. He gives a very like, 99 people in a room won't believe in you, but one does, sort of Lady Gaga of it all, right? Incredible. But then he says, because you've got to succeed to survive, you will, and talks about rise and grind. And I'm like, no, like he seems to not understand what's good about what he's saying. And maybe he wants to, sum everything up in a certain way. But like, I'm way more interested in when he gets specific and when he gets into like away from the sort of basic stuff, like in chapter one, like having no vision, no specific market. And when companies make change because you can afford to and not because you need to having endless money versus having the focus because you don't have a lot. I thought that was super brilliant. What did you think of that? I agree. And I saw that theme too. And I'm looking here, I have the book in front of me and it, it's with Daniel Paisner. <laughs> it's, it's like a little footnote. And I, I sometimes wonder, and I think you went through this experience as well with your book writing, how much of this is a Frankenstein? So I would think someone with Damon John, 300 million in wealth, and I'm not taking away from his writing abilities, but I would think it was an interview. He's got four books out. So it's probably, Damon, what do you think about this deep quote? And then chapter written by Daniel Paisner. 
I wonder how much of that element is. But I, I did see that as well because I, I wrote down some of my favorite quotes. He's got his, I think he calls them his power broke points, uh, which I think were, were pretty cool call outs. One of them was Coca-Cola sold 25 bottles in the first year. And so I think it's a good balance. He also talked about Nutri-Grain bars because I'm like, oh, Nutri-Grain bars. Is oh, no, not Nature's Valley. Nature's Valley. And he's like, they've always, in your head, you're like, they've always been a multi-million or billion dollar company. But it's like, they used to be, they were struggling to sell these and they started going to ski resorts and and tackling an affluent market. And I was like, that's ingenious. But now it's like just second nature that these things are are big. So yeah, I I saw that too, where you're like, well, that's a weird pivot. (laughs) Good, Good, but a strange pivot. There's something to what he's saying about when you have endless money, you are just gonna keep trying things that don't work. But when you don't have a lot of funding, you need to focus and actually make the product good. Like rather than being like, I don't know, we don't have a market. We don't have a specific vision. Like, let's just like make these changes because we can. And I thought that was a really smart business tidbit. One of my favorite stories related to that was Under Armour, which once again, I just associate with billion dollar brand because that's what it is now competing with Nike. And the guy said he named it Under Armour because 1884 Armour was available. He's like, I got to have this phone number because this is the way of the future. <laughs> and like, that's insane to me. He's an ex-football player uh, that a billion dollar company could be born because a 1-800 number was available. Those, those are great stories. On page nine, he says, it doesn't matter what you're selling. The power has shifted to the people, which I thought was a very interesting take on consumerism. And heads up, little aside, I'm actually about to start reading from my own notes on the episode. So it sounds like I'm reading from Damon's book, but this is actually my notes. I was ready to bang on about generational wealth, but I can see what he means. He does a good job of not blaming the person while talking about topics that others have tread in less empathetic ways. The part about like stay hungry, right? He's like, you know, talking about it helps to be so hungry, you have no choice but to succeed. And like talks about, you know, when your back is against the wall, it helps you to scrape and dream your way to the top, things like that. He still kind of dodges the word like nothing growing up, like growing up with nothing, you know what I mean? And like, he does sort of stumble on understanding inherited wealth. One of the first people he interviews is Steve Aoki, who comes from money. So I didn't really understand that. But we we won't get there for a second. But he says, There's tremendous power in being broke. The more you need to succeed, the more likely it is that you will succeed. The more you've invested, and here I'm talking about emotional and personal investment, not financial investment, the more you'll get back in return. And yes, but like at what cost? You know, like, of course, you're going to be running yourself ragged. Of course, you're going to be like, there'll be times when you're burnt out and things like that. But it does seem like he has more experience in this area than other people who would write similar things. Like it didn't annoy me that much. I felt the same way. And I think that's because what I feel he did a better job than most authors is not blaming you for it. So he's like, I do agree with you that there seemed to be a lot of oversimplification. I think a, a, a lot of wealth stories do this. Like I'm rich now. Here's three steps to do it. <laughs> and, and like, so not recognizing that they're the exception. They're the exception. Millionaires in themselves are the exception. But I do think what he does well that other authors do bad is I'm rich now. You suck. So follow my program. He's like, I'm rich now. This story is rich now. This man, woman, uh, uh, this story is rich now. Here's what worked for them. And I think he has so many examples. That's better. But I, yeah, I do agree with you. It's like a lot of times it felt one theme that I, I wrote down is a lot of people cried. And I thought that was good to share. He's like, it, it's, I, was, I was dead broke and I was crying. I was crying. I heard that in a few stories. But a lot of people were like, I maxed out my credit cards. And then the Under Armour guy, he got a $7,000 check. And, you know, he, 
they leave a large gap and then he's a billionaire. <laughs> and then another time it's like, I think it was the DJ. He's like, you know, I maxed out all my credit card. And his dad was rich. And I, that might be who you're talking about with Steve Aoki. I maxed out all my credit cards and then I had a great concert. And then I was rich. And it's like, I'm pretty sure there's a little bit more complicated intricacies <laughs> there. So I, I, there is some leaps there. And maybe that's the leap of faith, the power of Brooklyn he's trying to, um, to pass along. I know. I just kept finding his story so much more interesting than these other people. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. One of the things I love about Indeed is that it makes hiring all in one place so easy because when I'm looking to work with someone, I really need to be able to get someone fast. My job works very fast. Podcasts work very fast. And I've actually been looking for an assistant and I don't need to waste time sorting through matches without getting the highest quality person, right? When I'm looking to hire someone, whether that's a grant writer or a musician or something like that, it's very overwhelming because you get a lot of messages, but you're not able to like parse through yourself which ones are actually worth looking at. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash badwithmoney. Just go to Indeed.com slash badwithmoney right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash badwithmoney. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Have you been using Mint to manage your finances? First, the bad news. Mint is shutting down. Now, good news. There's a better alternative. Monarch Money. Mint users are turning to Monarch Money and loving it. That's right. I use Mint and now I'm using Monarch Money. It is very stressful, confusing, and time-consuming to manage my finances. I've tried other finance apps. They don't really work. Like, you know, I was very committed to Mint, and then I was uh, deeply sad when Mint went away. But now, I have tried Monarch. It's so easy to use with powerful features, collaboration tools, intuitive design, personalization, constant product improvements. I mean, I really value a company that is proactively looking at how to make finances easier. Did you know that money issues are a leading cause of divorce? Monarch, the top-rated personal finance app, also has built-in collaboration features so that you can invite your partner at no extra cost. Can you imagine being able to have a budget app with your partner? That is wild. You can see all your finances, you can collaborate on your budget, you can get insights on your cash flow and reoccurring transactions. It's a very easy way to manage a household's finances. Monarch is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash badmoney. Unlike other personal finance apps, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch has a tool that allows you to easily import your data from Mint and keep all your tags and categories. Monarch is the most customizable budget app. Change the layout of your dashboard, toggle between light and dark mode, create custom budgets and notifications, set up automatic rules for transactions and notifications and more. 
We will never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's the top rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash badmoney. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y slash badmoney for your extended 30-day free trial. Your business was humming, but now you're falling behind. Teams buried in manual work, taking forever to close the books. Getting one source of truth is like pulling teeth. If this is you, you should know these numbers. 37,025-1. 37,000. That's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs, key performance indicators, in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. If you have all the information about your business in one place, you can make way better decisions. And this is an unprecedented offer, meaning this is totally worth your time. As someone who runs a business, having all of this together in order to close my books, that would be invaluable. It's a time saver. It's literally the biggest time saver. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash badwithmoney. That's netsuite.com slash badwithmoney to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash badwithmoney. What did you think about the shark point basics. I, I like the call outs and I thought it was funny because I don't watch the show as much, but you can see this dynamic. Uh, he, he says he's not going to pick on Kevin O'Leary, but then he mentions him like three or four different times. He's like, you know, he's like, it's not that I got anything against Kevin. It's just that he sucks and he's always trying to steal money from the little person. He's like, I'm and he, he's writing it like it's a narrative. He's like, you know, I'm not going to talk about Kevin. Five more paragraphs about Kevin. <laughs> so, yeah, exactly. Because Damon's the people's shark. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I thought that was uh, interesting. And at least, you know, I don't watch the show enough, although I have my thoughts on Kevin, too. I don't watch the show enough to see that dynamic play out, but it doesn't surprise me. And like you said, it, you have to interpret it as, you know, it's his version of events. It's his book that that's an accurate representation of how he connects with people and how he connects with money. And I know he talked about his goals tied to health, wealth, philosophy and his family. And the story that he shared about himself that I really liked was he was talking about you, how you how people pitch him. So they're like, hey, I want to feed seals in you know, Guatemala or whatever example he used. He goes, what if you see me and I got a seal coat on? You know, <laughs> that's just not that doesn't appeal to me. But what does appeal to me is more time with my family. So your pitch should be like, hey, I don't need 10 hours of your time, which was a pitch example he gave. Working with me will give you 10 hours back. So you can spend more time with your church and family and volunteering to things that are important to you. I, th- I thought that was a really cool spin on the pitch and what's important to your client or pitch or Damon in this case, if you were pitching him. Yeah, I thought the most important. So it's it's all these things that add up to the word shark. So it's like set a goal, homework, adore what you do. Remember, you are the brand keep swimming. And I loved do the homework. And that's what you're talking about with he's saying, you know, 
if you pitch me and you're like, I want to do this thing in Costa Rica, but I'm from Trinidad and you might have a better chance of pitching me something about Trinidad. Like that was like, it seems simple, but that was really good advice. Like, you know, he talks about doing your homework, appreciating the history of your idea, your market and your competition. And I think there's so many people who think, oh my God, I'm the first person to have thought of this and I'm going to just steamroll ahead. And honestly, like a lot of times it is like straight cis white men who are like, I must be the first person who's ever thought of this. And then like you later find out that like there's been a black owned company doing this the whole time. You know what I mean? So I thought it was really smart to be like, if you have an idea, look through the market of that idea. And like, I also loved, he says, he acknowledges that that doing all of that is sort of like takes up time and safety, right? Like he says, in some cases, they might've grown up with a certain level of privilege. You know, maybe there was family money or professional contacts that could certainly have offered a leg up, but that edge never really came into play. And he's talking about the power of broke, like having that edge. And I don't, I'm not even mad. I'm not even mad at it. But he, but like doing your homework, I guess the edge is sort of like, right? The idea that like, if you come from money or privilege, you're just sort of like, I want to open a cupcake shop, which he talks about, right? But if you're not doing your research in the community, like one of my favorite lines is he's talking about someone trying to open a cupcake shop and they just have all the money in the world and they're making this really elaborate cupcake shop, right? And then they haven't done any homework or research or looked into the community at all. And then what they don't know is that there's a grandma at the church that sells cupcakes every Sunday and everyone loves her cupcakes and she's been doing it for 20 years and you're shit out of luck on your cupcake shop because this little grandma has covered the market, right? If you had just done your research or if you had, you know, tried selling cupcakes on a stand on the side of the road before investing all this money because you didn't have the money, you might have learned that there's another cupcake game in town. And I just loved that. I kept coming back to doing your homework was like such an important thing that he kept. I I just thought that was like a really good advice. Yeah, I think one that will relate to the audience <laughs> and your audience as well. I think he talked about doing your homework, the cupcake story. Actually, it was the Girl Scouts. So he's also talked about Girl Scouts and the little Girl Scout that sold her troop. She won her troop and she sold out because she went to a weed dispensary. This is like a famous news story now. But the one I didn't know about on the New York, on the other side of the coast, is one went to like the, um, unfortunately, I don't know where this is. I assume it's the Wall Street District, probably something more famous and and popular than that. I'm sure there's a word for it. But she went there and she sold out her troop because she, she targeted bankers and like where the money is. But, you know, simple things like doing your homework and the tying back to the cupcake story. I really liked that one because the cupcake story woman actually was a country singer at first. So, and, and she oh, got she, the idea. This is, this is when he's, this is two different ones. This is when he talks about the cupcake hypothetical and says that it's that stupid. And then he interviews someone who actually, Gigi Butler, who actually did a good job with cupcakes. So what were you going to say about her? Well, I think, and she's a good example of, you have one dream that she pursued and, she was willing to, well, I don't think she did it willingly. I think her back was against the wall. She said she was getting a little bit older and kind of worn out from the industry. And it was actually her brother. And he talks about this a few times, having encouraging. He talks about a wife. He talks about a mother who is supporting the entrepreneur. Like, hey, why don't you do this other thing? And a he lot suggested of women cupcakes. supporting men, I will say. <laughs> I wrote that down. A lot of moms and wives doing the back end. But this woman, this woman had a brother. Fine. 
Yeah, yeah, it was a brother in this case. And he just suggested, you know, why don't you share your, what is their grandmother's recipe for cupcakes? And ultimately it worked out for her, but only, well, actually I think she went into, once again, I was in a bunch of credit card debt. We opened a bakery and I got rich. <laughs> he, I mean, the I was stressed out reading it where right. she was like, yeah, the contractor came. I had to pay him $15,000, which is honestly, I found that to be good advice too, because I had an, a situation where, because she asked for like an extension. And I had a situation where company overpaid me and then they were like, "Uh oh, and they emailed me and they were like, we need you to give back $23,000. And I was like, I don't have that. I cannot just simply give that back to you. And so I was panicking and like crying and being like, oh my God, what am I going to do? And then my dad was like, why don't you just tell them you can't do it? And I was like, that's so embarrassing. Like, I don't know. Uh, like, and they, he was like, just say you can't do it. And I was like, okay. So I wrote back and I was like, I can't do it. And they were like, okay. But it's like literally just like having to ask and like her saying like, instead of taking it on herself and being like, oh fuck, well, I got to find $15,000 right now. She was like, it's like kind of humbling yourself and being like, hey, I actually, I actually can't pay you right now. Can we work something out? And I was like, yeah, that's really good advice. And to that point, point uh, several times he talks about she was he she was back to the wall so a lot of people in these stores were back to the wall so that was a I thought that was a great power of broke example because she's like now this cupcake factory has to succeed because at minimum I got to pay the contractor 15,000 I think she owed somebody else uh, some type of money but she was also which was you know funny the the she was also a cleaner <laughs> so she was still cleaning houses and then she'd go to her cupcake factory. So I thought that was a really great example of I'm going to pursue this dream. I'm not going to quit my nine to five or I guess it'd be uh, slightly contract work and still have this money coming in. And to see that success story, I thought that was good back to all like it. I, it can't fail because it can't. I think he called it get there anyway or anyway. Is what mm -hmm. I, wrote down. I also enjoyed her talking about cleaning Leanne Rimes's house and then making cupcakes for her. I thought that was really smart too. She had a connection with Taylor Swift, which, you know, and then uh, I don't know if we're going to get to Tim Ferriss. Once again, I see Tim Ferriss as multimillionaire, however many books he sold, like, you know, he's already there. So hearing these backstories that like he used to go to blogging conferences struggling just like me, I'm like, oh, that's, that's, that's a pretty cool connection. It is interesting. I, I, he gets into something called poverty of the mind, which is, I'm not suggesting we'd all be better off if we started from nothing because, hey, money can buy you a whole lot of advantages, better schools, a financial cushion if things don't go your way, investors you might be able to call on to help you start a business or fund your research and on and on. But there's a whole lot of silver lining out there for those of us who haven't been lucky enough to be born with silver spoons in our mouths. And for a lot of us, the silver lining covers the whole damn cloud. What it comes down to, I think, is mindset, the poverty of the mind. Are you a have or have not type of person? Are you a want or want not? It's how you approach your situation and what you do to make the best of your situation that makes all the difference. And normally I would be pissed, but I'm not even mad about that. And he does eventually go into like the difference between like poverty and poverty of the mind and like actually acknowledges that that is an incredibly different thing. He does then right after that say that inherited wealth doesn't matter that much, which I was like, okay, I can't, I can't. We stop taking that, stop saying good things and then taking it back. So also one thing that I really enjoyed is, and, and I wrote, this is true next to this. It reminds us that when you grow up on the side of have not, you're used to hearing the word no. In fact, you probably hear it more than any word in the English language. No, you can't afford this. No, you can't have this. No, that's impossible. When you finally do hear the word yes, you tear off after it. 
whatever it is you're chasing. You've heard no so often you're numb to it, but yes, it lights you up and fills you with possibilities. On the other side of that, when you grow up privileged, you never hear no. So as soon as those resources are gone, you're in a tough spot. You hear no for the first time, it's tough to recover. It's tough to look for another way to get to yes. And I was thinking about my own career and how often I just have to hear no. And like, it, I was thinking like, yeah, you're right. Like, because I hear no and I keep going. And I was just talking to my, my friend about how she's working on a book and the editor gave her notes that were like really devastating. And she was like, if this was my first foray into this industry and I got these notes back that were like, no, 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 I would quit. But because I've been doing this for so long, I was upset, but I was like, okay, I heard a no. And then I picked myself back up. And I was like, that's actually really true. And I've talked about this before that like people who are able to talk about money often are the poorest people because they have to be, they have to go into the, you know, place to get EBT and they have to like spell out their finances so they can get on disability and things like that. Like it's actually the people that hear no all the time that they do get beaten down for sure. There's a lot of stories that I've read about that, but you get sort of used to hearing no and that come, becomes a little bit of an asset. Yeah, the quote that he has there, I wrote down too, and it was 97% of entrepreneurs who give up working for the 3% who never quit. And then the other, because I really like age, you know, I'm on my fourth decade around the sun, so I'm very reflective at this time, elder millennial credibility. And he says, people between 55 and 64 have the highest rate of entrepreneurship. And I was like, yeah, yeah. So yeah, hope. That's <laughs> what I walked away with from this book. There's so many real, there's some really great parts about him, like doing all these odd jobs to get around with FUBU and to build stuff up like with FUBU, which I think is really worthwhile and worth reading. And then I also liked on uh, this, similar to what I was saying, he says, it's not that I wasn't strapped for cash, but I'd been strapped for cash my whole life. And I was like, right. Like when you don't know, you don't know. Like you're, you're, you're not accustomed to a certain thing. So you kind of just live in this world and keep, keep, I don't want to say rise and grind, but keep rise and grind. Then he absolutely loses me in chapter three by talking to Steve Aoki, who is like, comes from money. And I just don't think that it is telling the story he thinks it's telling. <laughs> yeah. And I think we should hit this a few times thematically. I have talked about this separately from the book, and I still feel this way even going through the book, and I'll feel this way leaving the book, is even the peace of mind you have, even if you never touch your daddy's money or your mommy's money or your family's money, knowing that you could fall back on a billion dollar or a million dollar pillow, like, I don't think people understand the freedom that that gives, like the risk that you can take because you're like, well, I'll just fall back on mom or dad's money. You always know that you can make that phone call. Whereas when you're the person, like, if I fall, I fall and I'm going to keep falling until I catch myself or not. And so, I, I, like you said, he doesn't talk about intergenerational wealth. He does a good job of not blaming, but I feel like that was skipped over and over again. And, and some of the stories where it's like they come from money, they have money to fall back on. I just, that makes life easier. I don't think people wrap their head around that. I am not sure why he chose any of these people. And we're going to skip a lot of them. And I also went through and noticed how many of them are people of color and how many of them are white. So I don't know. I truly do not know how he chose these people. I would love to know. Like, sometimes I feel like, what did he have some sort of like brand deal with them? Like, I don't understand. 
The next person he talks to is Acacia Brindley, who is a social media icon, face of a generation, selfie queen is what he calls her. Um, She is white. She is also like since this been mired in controversy, she has had a lot of she has had a lot of controversies surrounding her, including like stuff related to how she treats one of her children, stuff related to how she treats her dog. So kind of all this stuff. I don't really, I mean, he talks a lot about like going to music videos and getting people like LL Cool J to wear his stuff. And just then he interviews this girl who like, who cares? Like, <laughs> like I don't understand what, what she was bullied. Okay. Yeah. To that point, I mean, uh, and even Steve, I, although I think maybe loosely I've heard a circle or a song or something like, like some of the names I just knew on paper. So I, I don't have a story beyond the version that was told in the book, but it does not sound good if dogs, let alone children are involved. I know some people weigh those differently. That's why I mentioned both. <laughs> I just was like, okay, whatever. I mean, then I do like when he said, become a crash test dummy for yourself and you'll understand what will work. Trial error test. What will you do today and expect to learn from even if you fail at it? Okay, great. Then he gets into Rob Deerdick, who you mentioned earlier, who is white. I learned from him. I learned he's wearing his product. He's sporting his brand. And I was like, oh, I should wear my own merch more. That's interesting. And I also like that he talked about sort of, you know, using all of these social media opportunities, even if you're getting sort of like made fun of or people think it's, you know, weird. And I definitely can relate to that. Like, you know, we push and push on social media and I'm sure people are like annoyed by it. (laughs) But this guy was relentless, it seems like. (laughs) Oh. I know a little bit more about Rob's story, ironically, because he talks about it through ridiculousness. I had to trace backwards. But what I thought was interesting and relatable from his story, not from me, but an interesting perspective, is he dropped out of school at like 11th grade or something like that. So to accomplish what he's accomplished with the, quote, 11th grade education, I do find impressive in all the brand deals. And, and you know, I think he calls himself, and I would think it's fair now to call himself a mogul because of what he's done and licensing and kind of all those deals. But just to think of that as a hustler mindset and still accomplish it, I thought that was pretty cool. I liked that he couldn't afford this skateboarding contest. So he said, if I sign up 10 other people, will you let me skate for free? And they were like, sure. And he did it. I think that's really smart. I also, you mentioned licensing and this is something I learned from it where he, he said, what the hell did I care what they would pay me up front? I had nothing, so I didn't need anything. And then he ended up going all this, like going for licensing over and upfront. And then everything exploded because he made money on the back end, which I thought was really smart. And it's also, or at least specific to that, is bringing your expertise. So as a skateboarder, you know, as someone who dropped out in 11th grade, he knew that licensing was where their money was as a skateboarder. So you got all these Hollywood lawyers are like, oh, we're going to rip him all his money up front because we're not going to pay him uh, the upfront fees. But he knew that as soon as he got on TV, all of that licensing was going to sell. So I thought that was pretty cool. Like he played the game better than these rich folks. That's why it's like, on one page 72, he says it doesn't cost you anything to do a whole bunch of research, which I it costs time. But I do think I was like, that is really something that I'm taking away from this book. OK, so he talks about branding. So I want to ask you, some of these are really stupid, but he talks about your words. Right. And he's like his words for a long time were I'm on a quest. Now he's his words are the people shark. Rob's words were relentlessly living amazing, which is 
I um so stupid. But um, do you have words, Marcus, that you think are your words? I appreciate that because I'm among my people. So I'm not a good, I'm actually very bad mindset guy. I, once again, I'm not going to judge those. I know that's your vision board and all that thing. So this year, I'm on a faith walk because I, I meet, I reached like a milestone in my business. And I'm like, I'm stuck. I'm following all the data. Everything's green. I have more followers than ever, but I'm not get leveling up what's going on and going to therapy. My therapist, she was like, well, why don't you try to go on a faith walk and just do what's right and trust that the process will come. I'm rolling my eyes. I'm like, what? The? <laughs> so, so it's not for me. You know, but that being said, I just read uh, Simon Sinek's Find Your Why. So I got my why statement. I just rebranded my business because I am logical enough to go, hey, doing the same thing is the definition of crazy and that's not working. So following the data ain't getting you paid. So go on this Facebook. And if it ends at the the power of broke, hey, more power to me. So, you know, here I am talking all this mess, but I'm on this Facebook. Go on a Facebook. I love that. I, for a long time, I said mine was, it doesn't have to be perfect. It just has to be done. And now I don't know. Now I don't know. I'm trying, I'm looking. A lot has changed in my life. It is a, a good idea, I think, to have a simple idea of what you do, but I'm not sure I've landed on mine. <laughs> if people have suggestions, please write in. Well, like you said, with life changes uh, of many of mine was my wife and she's one of the reasons she encouraged me to go into therapy in any way. I was kind of toying with the idea for about a decade. <laughs> oh, <laughs> probably, just a light decade of thinking about pushed, it. She pushed me over the hill. She's kind of more aligned with that. So she actually gave me an idea recently because uh, once again, similar to the book, it's a service that she does. So she's like, why don't you put your voice here and do that? Mind you, I'm going to do it anonymous. So y'all going to have to track me down and best of luck until it's successful. Because I'm like, man, this is this is that vision board stuff they be talking about. I'm, like, I'm not putting my name with this, but hey, if it makes some money, I'm going to be all over. So we'll see how this credibility goes. She'll probably listen to the show, sue me 10 years from now that it was her idea. <laughs> So we we'll listen. See. She's one of those wives and mothers standing behind these powerful money making men, yeah, my, my, saying, "Why don't you keep doing what you're doing?" I, I call her and my mom executive producers, so they they run the show. Actually, I'm the face of it, but they run the show. Just so y'all know. <laughs> then he talks to Christopher Gray, who I really enjoyed, who is created a, an app called Scoli, who I ver- which helps people find scholarships. Scoli, I don't know, helps them find scholarships. Thought that was great. And then I was really inspired by, you've got to seek out every available opportunity, even if it seems like a long shot, because he applied to a million scholarships. And then he made an app helping other people find these scholarships. That made me go like, yeah, like there's, there's film festivals that I haven't sent stuff to, or there's, you know, why don't I look for grants or why don't I look like I, I think looking for who's paying for certain stuff or opportunities uh, outside of what you would normally like. You know, even like I have a movie I want to make and there's some guitars in the movie. And I was like, from reading this book, I was like, got the idea of like, oh, why don't I reach out to Fender and see if maybe they want to, you know, like, so I think like the book really gave me a lot of ideas, actually. Yeah, I walked away with a, a few as well. It's not a, I'm sure the audience doesn't care, but <laughs> uh, y'all can see that in this anonymous thing that I'm going to do. But the one that I, I took away from that story specifically, and it, it was thematic and some others, is solving for your problem in the world. So he wrote that app because he couldn't figure out how to get scholarships. And then he got $1.3 million and he's like, and I don't think, and I think I, this came up a few times, he didn't think that was a big deal. He's like, all oh, these kids are out here you know, getting scholarships and then found out that people are unsuccessful, solve for a problem in the world. I think he went on Shark Take in that particular story. So that's pretty cool. Like, and I've been searching for that, that thing myself. 
for that would be 40 years. Like, what's the problem in the world? You know, like, uh, why can't I just wake up one day and find a problem in the world and solve this billion dollar issue? So I'm still in search of that quest myself. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'll find it on my faith walk. On your walk with faith. <laughs> Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's trusted financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. The nerds have helped me get smarter about things like managing finances with a partner without causing a breakup. We all know about that in my life and how hard that's been for me and also my listeners. You guys hear them talking about it on the mailbags. It is hard to manage finances with a partner. Putting away money for retirement, since I'm not going to be doing this podcast forever. Sorry, I guess I could, but retirement is huge for me. I am deeply focused on it right now and planning for my tax bills so I don't dread April every year. Taxes are a doozy and it's always changing. How do you know what to do? Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This is a person who is actually and genuinely inspiring, despite what it shows about the bleak education availability reality. But he's he's a black man. And this is someone who makes sense to interview for this book. <laughs> and I liked, best of all, there wasn't a lot to it in terms of startup costs. And I wrote just his knowledge. And then I was like, I need to do more stuff that is passive. Like, I need to have more, you know, Damon in the book, We'll, we'll be constantly saying like, go to damonjohn.com slash the power of broke to get more resources. And I was like, yeah, exactly. Why am I not, why am I not doing that stuff? There's no startup costs. There's no like valuing expertise was really a big part of this. Yeah. And I think his brand was a startup of that. He just didn't see black entrepreneurs out there. And the one I wrote down was just because you can't, you can't, once again, simple quote, but you know, I wrote it down anyway, just because you can't do it doesn't mean you can't do it. And he was talking about, he didn't know how to sew and and yet he runs a clothing brand, but he just, he taught himself. And then, you know, once you have the money, start getting the contractor for the people who can do. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I really like the takeaway for Chris was realizing that the homework he was doing on his own could be molded and marketed in a way that could benefit others. What expertise have you developed in your own life that you can put to work in the marketplace? And then recently, I actually started doing workshops where I was like, hey, I I write pitches and I write scripts all the time. Like maybe I should charge people to be able to look at their scripts and give them notes. And I was like, right, why am I sitting on this expertise? So thank you, Damon John. (laughs) Be careful, he's gonna come back for that 10%. (laughs) And he probably will because he does listen to the show. You organically came up with this idea. (laughs) I, I really did come up with ideas from reading this, which is really wild. He also, in the next chapter, is ba- I said he's back to talking about himself. Thank fucking God. It's so much more interesting. You can't have too much money, right? Just so you know, that is not a trick question. The answer is an emphatic no, but you can get yourself into trouble if you get your hands on too much too soon. And he's talking about bootstrapping. How do you feel about that? Once again, I see what he's saying. And I think we're seeing that in like the tech sector collapse, that you can have too much money and overburden yourself. And maybe because I haven't experienced the reality of too much abundance, that sounds insane to me. So it's, it's I, maybe there's a middle ground of abundance, but I, you know, that once again of, well, it's the power of broke. So I, I, I get why he's harping on that point, but I, I, it's hard for me to connect with those. And that, that was thematic through, through, through the stories. It's hard for me to connect that there's too much money for success. Yeah. I mean, I, I think there was a really good explainer where he's talking about getting more money and giving up more percentage of your company. And then like understanding that the person who takes 30%, like you get more money, more percentage is given away. And then the next round of percentage comes off of your plate because you're selling more percentages. And I just thought that was like a really, really interesting explainer. Yeah. yeah, um, Thank you for that. He said with FUBU, someone tried to get in as an early investor at 10,000 of like 15% of his business, which you're like, you know, sounds like, you know, small potatoes or whatever bread, whatever metaphor you want to use. But then he said when the company was worth 400 million or billion, that would have been 160 million. So someone would have invested 10,000 to get 160 million. That's, that's a hell of a return. Ultimately he passed on that opportunity. So I I guess he proves me wrong in that example. Even if you don't want to do that, it was a really good explanation that I had never really heard before. Okay, so then I'm going to skip ahead where he talks about doing a proof of concept, not relying on friends and family members, and that he gave away 10 shirts to friends and family members who promised to wear them and bring back the reactions they got on the streets. But it it was useless and nice to hear, but not helpful. Like he needed to, he needed to go to people who didn't know him, which I thought was very interesting. That's one I really liked a lot. The proof of concept, because, and and this is why you read the book. This is why he's the mogul is what I do. Like a lot of people, I buy all the things, buy all the equipment, buy all the stuff. Then I hope I succeed. And he's like, don't expend anything. Do it as cheap as possible. See if people actually want it, test the market. And he said he would go to those conferences. So he would sell in New York and he'd go to Maryland and people would wear those clothes to New York and go, oh, that is proven proof of concept that that is a good jersey. That is a good hat. I should do more of that. Mm -hmm. I like that in the thing about Gigi, he says, we, we get into Gigi Butler and her cupcakes, but this is the most God stuff. And he says, the trouble is faith alone doesn't put food on the table or a roof over your head, which after reading Dave Ramsey's thing about how Jesus has chosen him to be rich, it was like, this is so refreshing. Oh my God. I wasn't familiar with that. Not surprised, but I'm not familiar with that. Literally, Dave Ramsey is like, I mean, it's just so, it was just really good to see like, you know, the that these people are like, 
I don't see any power in the situation of being broke. Like it just seems really, it was so realistic that when later it was like, she said, God will take care of me finding strength in God. I was like, you know what? Just, yeah, have strength. Whatever you can, trying is hard. Whatever you need to be able to try, I say, go for it. I wasn't even mad. Yeah, I think especially in this environment, that's why I was open to both this book and, and, and another way is, you know, three recessions. I'm losing track of all my recessions now. Uh, a pandemic, you know, surviving these things, like whatever it takes. So back to the vision board. If, if it gets you there, what do you say? Anyway or anyway. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Who, who am I to judge? Then we talk about the guy from Under Armour, Kevin Plank, who I wrote. This is the first story of someone actually having no money. <laughs> I'm trying to, I mean, the story he told, I'm trying to think of my brokest point. Talk to the wife about this. My my version of broke is different than her version of broke. Credit cards get a little high. I'm like, I'm broke. And she's like, you just got some bills. (laughs) But he was talking about he couldn't cross the Jersey Turnpike because he didn't have $2. And I was like, oh, damn, maybe I've never been broke. (laughs) I mean, it was, yeah. Like I, I, this is like the thing that we were talking about of honesty, right? He says, All he could do was throw up his hands and beg for mercy and say, I'm sorry, ma'am, I just don't have the money. She stepped out of a toll booth, flashed him his scolding, pitiful look like he was the lowest low and took down his license plate, started writing him a summons. He'd never been more embarrassed, but he didn't even have $2 to his name. And I was like, okay, that's the first story in this book that I'm like, yeah, dude, like that's real. And that was an example of, I think he had, you know, scholarship, but like true middle class, maybe even less, went to college, was trying to get by and, you know, almost failed. And that was the one, I I don't know if we'll get to that point. That's the one that ends with, which I also thought was funny because I think you and I can relate to this. He was chasing after a multi-billion dollar university for money for months. He's like, I've been chasing after them to pay their own invoice for months, which is a reality all of us contractors can relate to. And then they finally did at the moment in which he needed it most. Yeah. Yeah. I underlined There are too many entrepreneurs sitting in their attics and basements right now saying, it's just not right. It's just not ready. But you've got to make it right. You've got to get it ready. And I think that that's like a thing that I come up against where people who are wealthy that I've seen in Hollywood will spend so long on a script and like nitpicking because they have all the time in the world. Their parents are funding their rent. And I have been in some ways like grateful for my, my, words or whatever, which are like, it doesn't have to be perfect. It just has to be done because that has forced me to make more things versus sitting on a script for 10 years because you just can. Yeah, that's brilliant and and definitely relatable. So finally, we are back to talking about Damon again. Thank fucking God. And this is my favorite chapter. It's about his dyslexia. And he's going into disability in a way that I've never read in another finance book by a big guru. He's like, he talks about his dyslexia. He talks about systemic injustice. He talks about how being a minority in a mostly white community or a woman in a male dominated industry. And then he talks about like being dyslexic and how, you know, he, he really struggled with it and that he works with the, you know, the Yale Center for Dyslexia and Creativity. And like, I really enjoyed this. He talks about disability in general. He talks about all these sort of people who, have, you know, succeeded, but he's not, he doesn't say like, your disability doesn't matter. And you just got to get up with your bootstraps. Like he really acknowledges like the ways in which, you know, 
his his different, I mean, specifically learning disabilities, like really affected him. And I thought that was like one of the most interesting things in the book. One, I, I he doesn't do it as often. I guess it's not an autobiography, but talking about his passions. So this is one of them. Like you said, uh, he also talked about Trinity and being with his family, Trinidad and being with his family. But he says that, that he also saw that as an eventual advantage because it literally forced him to see the world differently. So it, it forces him to slow down how he approaches businesses. And he thinks that that is still a part of his success to this day. Yeah, I just had never read and I read a lot of these books and I have never even people like our minorities who are like racial minorities who write books generally will be like there's I and and me being this didn't have anything to do with it and it didn't hold me back in any way and blah, blah, blah. And like he he goes into like being black a little, but I just had never seen disability talked about this way in like a big scale. And he has like, you know, this was the New York Times bestseller and stuff. And I just, I was really engaged in his story about dyslexia because it just felt so personal. And that's why I hate the rest of these interviews. And I just want to talk about him. And I can speak to that as a little bit. I, I hate to be the, you know, on behalf of the black community, but uh, on behalf of the black community <laughs> represented by this one guy is, you know, there is a hesitancy that I think we see epidemic to black men to talk about not only weakness, but any additional weakness. So I, I do think that's a great point that he was able to talk about dyslexia, learning disabilities and be open about it. That's something that I've tried to do with my platforms in the later years is, you know, recognizing that representation matters. That's why I talk about going to therapy. And, you know, it, it, I think my parents still get their, their hair stand up a little bit because, you know, it's, it's our generation is so natural. But I, I feel like it needs to be heard. It does need to be normalized. That is why I talk about it. So, yeah, I thought that was a great example here. Well, that's why I wanted to have you on the show to talk about this book, because I was like, I don't think I can, as like a white person, sit here and talk about, you know, Damon's work, because he is one of the most visible black financial gurus in in doing the stuff that you, you know, do. You want to teach about debt and things like that. And he is one of the the big, the maybe most, one of the most famous black men talking about this kind of thing. So that's why I was curious, like what you think of him or what you, you know, reading this book. Do you feel like he did a good job sort of being like, I am, you know, I'm putting visibility on this stuff or I'm talking about, because I think he really did go into like the specific blackness of his, his life. What do you think? I thought he did a good representation and balance. But to your point, and I think what is absent from the book and, you know, whether by design or otherwise is... I don't feel like he went into depth about my black man experience. He told an experience and I am a black man, not that really intersection of here's how I look at this as a black man. Now, like I said, that might have been by design. Maybe it was in there. And the editors took it out like that part. We'll never know. And as we talked about earlier in the story, I, I can also relate to representing for the hood and maybe it wasn't the hood and actually your zip code was the birds you know i was actually in the hood and man, i knew him in high school so like we'd have to have the other fubu members to balance out where the truth lies uh, my father tells me there's the truth is three-sided their version your version and the truth <laughs> so so we've got one part of the triangle that's true i also well to speak to to the blackness i mean on 135 he says so basically he wanted to get fubu in music videos and or or in commercials. At the time, the BET network was the go-to place for our community. It was our little safe haven on the dial. Back in 1998, it felt like every black kid in America was watching BET. 
A 30-second commercial spot on BET ran about $1,500, which was a ridiculous bargain. In comparison, a 30-second spot on Friends, one of the top-rated primetime shows that season, cost almost half a million dollars. One of the reasons the BET ratings were so low was because the A.C. Nielsen Company, the folks who measured viewership, tended not to put their famous boxes in predominantly Black communities. As a result, the Nielsen ratings for BET programs didn't really reflect the actual ratings, so the advertising was cheap. You got a whole bunch of bang for your buck, and when you're broke, that's the right kind of equation. So he used the marginalized community advantage is what like he calls it. Basically, like there were BET influencers and things like that. And so their spots could run 10, 15, 20 times a day on BET. And then he says, yes, we would have seen another 10 million sets of eyeballs, but it's not like they would have noticed because they would have been the wrong sets of eyeballs. And I was like, this is brilliant. <laughs> I assume that that was uh, that uh, deal was done before NSYNC started rocking FUBU. But tying back to the story, I, I think that was a really good example. So he talks loosely about it. He's like, oh, the Nielsen rating system coincidentally doesn't put in the black community. And I think, you know, there's that intersection. He, he could have really doubled and tripled down there if he wanted to. I'm sure there's no there's probably a bunch of data that he has money to get access to for while the Nielsen rating system isn't measuring the black entertainment television network that probably most of us could conclude and draw conclusions on or we could use data to draw conclusions on. But instead, he kind of just kind of shrugged his shoulder like, oh, it's probably just a strange coincidence. And I, I kind of felt that he does that a, a few times. But to your point about the New York Times article and him being worth 300 million and working for ABC or CBC or CBS or wherever it is, he's probably also thinking like, I'm not going to mess up my bag trying to make up. This, <laughs> I didn't even think point. of that. I didn't even think of that. You're right. Cause friends ran on NBC and I think, I don't know how connected CNBC is, but yeah, you're right. He, he can't really talk shit. <laughs> you know, so, so that's that dynamic. Like, I get it. Uh, I had an opportunity to fall through this probably 10 years ago. I, actually, I, I'll talk about it because you mentioned it. The, not Trump, but someone from the Trump campaign back when our podcast was bigger than it is now reached out and they're like, hey, we're doing a, a black event. You know, we want black influencers on there. I'm like, what I look like. And then I get up there like it, it might be small and behind the scenes. But of course, Trump comes in, shakes my hand. And that's the photo that goes viral. I'm like, I I'm a pass. I'm a pass. Oh, my God. But that's always the dynamic you have to walk of like I would have been seen by millions. But do I want to be seen by millions with the Kanye photo <laughs> and Trump? That That's not the brand that I want. Yeah, it's just you and Steve Bannon with like thumbs up. You're like, it's like, why is Marcus in a photo with Jeffrey Epstein? Anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Was you know, he I, on the flight logs? <laughs> and that's what I'm known for for the rest of my exactly. Every interview is me explaining like, nah, you see, they told me I was going to come there and talk about the book, right? <laughs> <laughs> see, That's so funny. I'm glad you didn't do that photo op with Ivana Trump. Okay. Then I think he, he gets a little bit into what is interesting where he talks about how being broke is, is also bad. Like he says... When you come from a place of broke, when you come from a place of need, it can actually get in the way of what you're trying to do. So he talks about how it actually, the reality of how it hurts for pitching in some ways, which like finally we're getting to on page like 140. But I thought this was really interesting, like, cause he gets pitched to all the time. So if you're someone who pitches, this book is great for you because he says, sometimes when your back is against the wall, you only think about what's in it for them. You're pitching, you should never lose sight of the other person's need. What's in it for them, not what's in it for me. 
So what's in it for the networks or the financiers? Like, you know, and then he gets into what you were talking about where he's like, you know, what if I'd rather address a crisis in Trinidad where my family is from? What if, you know, I I don't want to do a bunch of deals with about seals because <laughs> because I love my seal coat or whatever. Like, I think it's great. Like, okay, then he writes, a quick Google search might turn up a picture of me in that seal coat, a picture of me working with the community in Trinidad and an article talking about how important it is for me to carve out time with my kids. And I was like, I wrote, oh my God, I should have done this every time I've reached out. I'm dumb. Sometimes I do look up what that person is up to before I email them, obviously, because like for one thing, there was one instance where I was like talking to someone and she was talking about her boyfriend. And then she was like, yeah. And like, it's really sad because his dad just died. And I was like, oh, I'm so sorry. And I looked it up and his dad is like a famous director. So like, imagine if I had reached out and not looked into that he's grieving his father. Like, (laughs) you really have to do that kind of thing. Yeah, I think uh, especially in this day and age, it really separates you from all those pictures. Just that little bit of due diligence or homework, as he called it in the book, is like learning a little bit about the person. And I I think we all get that or or a lot of us get that if we're in the contractor influencer space. I mean, I get them every week where I can literally see they they copied my name and the font is different. They're like, hey, Marcus, awesome to meet you. Pasted text that looks different. Hey, reach out. I'm I'm like, no. (laughs) Exactly. I actually kind of have like, because I've changed my name from transitioning, I can tell where, when they've looked me up most recently, because they'll use my dead name or they'll use Gab, which is what what was on my social media for a while. So I can tell where they found me like, oh, if it says Gab, they're just mass messaging Instagrammers. You know what I mean? So I, I think this is really important and I really liked it as advice. Okay, so then he gets to, I'm skipping Moe's bows. So I didn't really care about Moe's bows. I'm sorry if you did. I thought it was fun to talk about the importance of mentorship, but, and there was some really fun social media ideas. Like he talks about doing an entrepreneur roll call or doing like a couple hours in the day where he does these rise and grind posts. Like I thought that was really interesting that he still feels like he needs to engage with his audience on social media, even at his level. Then we get to Tim Ferriss, who's the author of The 4-Hour Workweek. And I think he talks a lot about the line between persistence and being a pest. And I wanted to know what you thought of that and what you think that line is. What I think is uh, interesting there, and I once again have to work backwards, so it's interesting seeing the backstory of Tim Ferriss. But, you know, some other themes that we've kind of touched on, and once again, Damon doesn't go deep on, is I wonder if those would be the same way from a black man or woman or basically a not white man doing this approach. So if a not white man goes to a a skating booth and is like, hey, I'm going to bring 10 more people in. Will you let me in? And if a not white man stalks the wife of (laughs) nicely, (laughs) the, the wife of the blogger he's trying to get an interview with, you know, do I also get the interview or do the security guards escort me out? I think sometimes like because you don't have that purview, like you don't have to think of another way. Like I would be likely uncomfortable or maybe a little bit more comfortable over time. But if I was starting out in the beginning of my career, I'm like, I'm not stalking a blogger's wife, even if I want to have an interview with the blogger, because that looks differently from a black man. Like, hey, would you want some drinks or can I do anything to help around here? Uh, That might 
that might come off a little bit different. So that, again, that kind of ties back to the themes of, you know, wealth and perspective. And are they able to glance over that? So I'm surprised that he didn't go a little bit deeper into that. But that that is thematic of the book. Like he kind of takes when it comes to those two, those themes, it's kind of superficial and with a focus on the story. Yes, I agree. I think he I mean, I thought it was interesting where he had his last pitch for his book and he just started making all these promises like I'm going to make this book a hit and I'm going to like, you know, do all this stuff. And that way and like made him sound like this, like he wrote Pitbull Marketing Machine, which like technically the publisher should do. But I I sort of I liked that. But and he's like, oh, being nice can pay off and things like that. Like, I liked that. But you are so right. Like, multiple stories in this book would not work for like a trans woman. You know what I mean? And I can speak specifically to an experience similar to that. Like I'm from Austin. Like I I spent 10, 16 years and I've not for lack of trying applied multiple times. I don't have a a story that goes, I ran into somebody and then I was speaking to South by Southwest. I just have no's up to this date. Now, once again, he has another story where somebody got 300 no's or something like that. So maybe I'm on 250. <laughs> maybe my, at my 300s, maybe that's what it is. And- that's the beautiful delusion people like us have to live with. I'm in my delusional era. I'm on my faith walk. So we'll see where both of our stories end. <laughs> but mine has not ended at speaking at South by Southwest, comma, yet. Right, exactly. I'm going to breeze through some stuff, but I we're like almost towards the end. But so, okay, then we get back to broke isn't just personal. He mentions Mitt Romney, but he does have some self-awareness. He talks about corporations are people, but then he does kind of like backtrack on that. So I was like, all right, I'm still, I'm still your friend now, Damon. He talks about Nature's Valley, which you mentioned, where the guy decided it was like not doing well. And some young intern decided that he would target affluent skiers. And I thought that was really interesting. He also talked about the idea of, so what do you think about the idea of item, label, brand, lifestyle? I had never seen that put out so like so specifically. And I was like, ooh, that's really interesting. I like it a lot. You know, it's kind of tying back to the guerrilla marketing. And I did like that aspect of the story because that's the kind of fight that I have to have. A lot of what I've gotten is like me fighting behind the scenes and then an opportunity presents itself. I'm an auditor by trade for the, the listening audience. So I like any type of system. The, the one that I'm toying around with right now is a car challenge action result because it's simple and I'm like, oh, okay. And then I can also explain it, put a picture around it, develop a video usually in my case. So I, I like any type of list or system that I can apply. What is it? It's what is the three? That one was car, the car system, which actually I just learned from my boss, which is challenge action result. And so she came up from that startup space. So she, she, she thinks like that, you know, I, I see it in, in reality in, in, in the workforce. That's cool. He talks about, he talks about at not being able to afford a billboard but asking shop owners in New York if he could have graffiti artists spray paint FUBU on their metal things that they pull down to close their shop. And that got a lot of attention for FUBU. And I thought that was really interesting and smart. Really, a lot of it is like he can just ask things. And I and a lot of these people are just like asking for stuff that is kind of outlandish. I think, yes, there's a different type of person who can ask different types of things. But I did think that was interesting. You talked about the Girl Scouts thing, which I very much enjoyed. And also I liked the idea of the Girl Scouts is a feel-good cookie purchase, whereas a pack of Oreos is a feel-guilty cookie purchase. I thought that was really interesting. I thought it was interesting that he talked about having an urgency in selling seasons. Like I always think about that, like doing merch drops. 
that are instead of like all going to always be up in the store doing ones that are like, this is for five days and now it's done. I also really enjoyed, these are just ideas that I got from reading this book or like selling to the customers you have. So like, don't spend a lot of time trying to get new customers like you can, but spend time looking at ways to sell, keep selling to the customers you already have. I was like, brilliant, brilliant. This whole chapter really has a lot of great business advice. Yeah, I thought the whole book, and I hope that is coming across. I, first of all, I thought it was a good book. I thought it was a good read. It was a quick read. I read it this week <laughs> to get ready for this show. <laughs> and and so there were a lot of takeaways and quotables. And like you said, what I like about this book specifically and books like this, I can actually apply. Instead of just like these platitudes, I'm like, oh, that, that was a feel-good read, I, and I'm not going to apply any of that in my life. There's actually things I'm going to take away from this book and apply in my Definitely. Business. But then he starts interviewing bad people again, like a someone who like runs kiosks and uh, like <laughs> takes advantage of people and is like talking about MLMs, which he does admit are controversial, at least. He also talks about this woman who figured out how to like do uh, internet shopping before that was a thing, which with Market America. And it's like, okay, but then it's like, she got really big selling weight loss products. And I was like, no, <laughs> We are not exploiting people with acne or people with who want to lose weight. This is not the way. This is not good. Yeah, there was a uh, smoking cream that stopped you from smoking. <laughs> smoking cream. Like, <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, I was just like, OK, well, these are bad people. Then finally, we get back to Damon, who's the best part of this book. And he talks about this really amazing story at South by Southwest where he his friend invites him to sit in with all these different entrepreneurs. and. This is uh, on page 221. This is something I loved. They all came down to one basic element, one commodity. We're all in the business of selling time. Time is the only thing money can't buy. And yet we're all out here selling it. And I thought that was brilliant. I was like, right. Like all these products that people want is just stuff that will save us time. So I have a comment or two comments. Do you remember who the friend was? Gary Vanderchuk. <laughs> so I was like, that, that's... Okay, I don't know who oh, that he's, is. he's uh, probably got 2.1 million, if not three to four million followers on Instagram. Started off in the wine business and has kind of become an influencer from there. So that's a very great, good friend to have at South by Southwest. My other comment being, but I, what I did think was cool, he's talking about all these multimillionaires. I think there was even a couple billionaires in the story. And it turned out they were too loud. So they ended up whispering in the bathroom so they could talk about, you know, the future of entrepreneurship. But I thought that was just really, I thought that was really cool and relatable. Like you got all these multimillionaires probably came in on private jets and they, they have to talk in the bathroom because their neighbors are upset about how much noise they're making. Yeah, because they're in a hotel. Yeah, I thought that was, you know, noise complaints, the democratization of of people being like, stop being loud in a hotel. And, and to that point, I wonder if those people ever know that they, they shushed Damon, J they probably shushed a billion dollars. They should have had a cup to the wall. They shushed a billion dollars worth of wealth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And he says he felt out of his depth because he was talking about like stuff that he thought could make it happen. And then people were like, what if we could drink information? What if it becomes illegal for humans to drive? And I was like, okay, I, I, I do, I did like a peek into those conversations, but yeah. And then he, he gets into what we were talking about before about how national distribution for FUBU came at, came at a price. He also says, like, does something that no one ever does in these books, which is acknowledge that times have changed since he got successful. 
the bare fucking minimum, but he does it. Yeah, I don't know. I guess you'd have to be lucky, but can you get LL Cool J or your boy that will become LL Cool J to wear your gear in his video and then do a probably one of the most popular football movies any given Sunday after like that that was that was a lot of doors opening at the right time for this opportunity. So he doesn't like expect you to do that. I mean, it's like he he gives you advice in in a way that's like, look, you don't have to do what I did because it's not available to you, which is I think self-aware. The book has some really interesting ideas for social media engagement and fundraising in general. He talks about a friend who says he'll name a character in his novel after the donors to self-publish a novel. Talks about like like trying to sort of do prototypes of things and then giving out prototypes to people who donate. Like he he he's very like this chapter has a lot be the change has a lot of really really great ideas for fundraising. I thought. Yeah, I agree. I, I mean, generally speaking, I thought there was a lot of great ideas that you could apply to a, a numerous amount of business, even maybe some of the ones that were like, OK, selling smoking cream. Yeah, I, I wouldn't say take that one. But <laughs> but there's like there was a story. It felt like representative of everybody in there that you could have some takeaways from. I mean, it, it, it at least sparked some inspiration for me, which none of the other books have done. <laughs> he talks about what we talk about a lot on this show, which is like poverty getting into your DNA and like how, you know, you, you get like from where you grew up, it really affects a lot of your mindset. And he kind of tries to spin a positivity to the shame, which I really enjoyed. And then he also does something I also love, which he shares real numbers from being on Shark Tank. He shares real numbers of what he was paying for certain things, of how much money he put in his first year, of how he tried to keep his costs down. He also acknowledges the support he has in place in terms of like lawyers and digital marketers. He doesn't say that he did everything himself. It's really great. And then he does the thing I fucking hate, which he's like, people that I interviewed in this book are just like you. No, they're not. Why? Why are you being so good and then saying stuff that is dumb and generic and not true? Yeah, I, I've got no, I got no rebuttal. I got no rebuttal. Because then he mentions Tony Robbins and Donald Trump. And then, okay, so all this whole book, I'm loving it, right? Then on page 238, I start writing, no. <laughs> then he starts interviewing Mark Burnett, his boss, his yep. boss on Shark Tank who got a lot of flack for not releasing tapes of Trump on The Apprentice during the election, which could have maybe affected the election. Okay, so Mark Burnett. So then he interviews the most unrelatable person who is like, the fear of failure is so great, they wind up taking ordinary jobs and living ordinary lives. And I was like, or that's from actually failing, you dumb idiot. This is the yeah, most, this is the person who has the least to say. Do you feel that way? <laughs> Yeah, I wrote that one down and that it bothered me is I don't think people choose ordinary lives. Well, I guess some people do, but people are sentenced to ordinary lives. You know, if you get beat and down And also, enough, what's so bad about an ordinary life, Mark Burnett? <laughs> exactly. And what is ordinary? Not being on, I found it, it's actually on the cover, if not being on ABC's hit Shark Tank. I'm, I was like, this is the, I was like, Damon, we were rooting for you. We were all rooting for you. And you're right. People are sentenced to ordinary lives. It's not because they have a fear of failure. It's because failure is all around, my dude. 
That was a very real possibility. And by his own acknowledgement is the 97% possibility because the quote is 97% of entrepreneurs who fail and or end up working for the 3% who succeed. I know. It's not a big population. I know. Then he talks about faith and free enterprise. And I was like, no. Then he talks about Donald Trump again. And I was like, no. The one thing that I liked was that he was talking about creating the show Survivor and he looked for a government that needed a tourism campaign and he went and did there. Fine. Interesting. I wrote down, good to check on who needs PR. Yeah, I like that. Then after everything we've been through, he ends on a Bible quote. Suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character hope. Really, he says, if you have hope in anything you do, you can make it. And I just wrote, damn it. (laughs) We were so close. Yeah. I mean, I'm tying it to the influencer generation. In this case, it'd be I can't pay pay my bills and hope and I can't pay my bills and likes. I was just like, I get that you don't want to get fired, Damon, but no. To wrap it all up, he does a final thought. And then I was like, why? This is not, he says, broke only breaks you if you let it. And I wrote, that is not what we learned. That is not, that is not what we learned in this book. Yeah, I would say, and I was jotting it down. In this metaphor for me, hope would be gas, but opportunity is the vehicle. And I feel like the the vehicle passes a lot of people by. That's a Marcus Garrett original. (laughs) Yeah, I mean- What we really learned is what, and this is the last thing I'll say, what we really learned and what he should have said is what we learned is expect it to be hard. Build up your first goal and work at it until you get it right. And then like, that's what I think. Like, I think like he doesn't understand that that's what he was saying. The more humility and integrity you put into the world, the more you will connect with others and you will be rewarded for solving other people's problems. Like this is all good. But the the takeaway was not like broke makes you better. So I was like, okay. So anyway, that's the last thing I want to talk about because we have to wrap up. But I, I loved this book. There were certain parts that I was like, I don't know why this is here. And then there were certain parts where he missed entirely what was good about what he said. Yeah, I'd say all that's fair. Do you have closing thoughts on Damon John's The Power of Broke? Like you said, I I think it's a good book. I actually would recommend people read it. You know, sometimes I'm like, this is a good book, but don't read it. Don't waste your time. You've heard all you need to hear from this because I think there's so many different variations of takeaways you can have from the show and not my or from the book. Uh, and not my quote, but one that I heard recently, which actually kind of put me in pause because it's different than elder millennials that were raised to be. And it's follow your talent, not your purpose. And I think a lot of times we're taught to follow our purpose, follow our dreams and the money will come. And I feel like that's actually more the exception. And I feel like in this book, he actually followed his talent. You know, he followed the clothing line, which then and he even admits this in the book. I didn't expect to become an entrepreneur or the people shark that that successful clothing line, his talent led to his purpose, which now he has the funds and time and availability to pursue those. Yeah, I agree. This book is a recommend, which we've never done on this show. (laughs) (laughs) Glad to be first. You're the first. I almost DM'd you to be like, Marcus, I'm actually enjoying this book. (laughs) I hope you don't come in like, like gunslinging because, (laughs) yeah, because I was like, from what I know of you, I was like, I think Marcus is also going to like it. 
I, I appreciate you not biasing me. And I actually, yeah, I really did enjoy the book. And I knew, same thing. If it sucked and I felt a different way, I'd, I'd come on and say this book sucked. Don't read it. So I'd recommend it as well. So where can people find you and follow you and know more about you? I'm universally branded under the Marcus Garrett. As you mentioned, I'm most active on Instagram at the Marcus Garrett. Uh, wherever you're listening to this podcast, you can find me on YouTube and Instagram interviewing your favorite influencers and entrepreneurs about life after death. Perfect. Thank you so much for coming on. And, you know, broke only breaks you if you let it. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Bad With Money with Gabe Shane Dunn is a production of Noted Bisexual. Produced by Melissa D. Montz and Diamond M. Print Productions. Edited by Diane King. Post-production sound by Coco Lorenz. And music by Mike Kaplan, Zach Sherwin, and Jack Dolgen, as sung by Sam Barbera. Thank you. Love you. Bye.